Well, my main thing is to just write and not worry about who you're going to upset because <laughs> that's like you can't think in those terms because you'll never write anything. You'll be frozen at the screen, you know. Just pretend nobody's going to read it ever and just sit down and do it. And also interview people. Like talk to everybody in your family because a lot of times what you remember is not what somebody else remembers. This is This One Thing I Do, a podcast about people and their passions. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Ed Zitko, and welcome to This One Thing I Do. In this episode, we're talking to author Helene Stepinski, and I will let Helene go ahead and introduce herself. Hi, uh, hi, Ed. I'm an author. I've written three books, three memoirs, actually, which is pretty unusual. I think people generally like write one memoir. I've written three. Um, one about growing up in Jersey City, uh, one about playing in a rock band, and one about a murder in my family from Italy from the um, 19th century. That's me. And I'm working on a new book, which is not a memoir because I've run out of material. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's start at the beginning. What makes somebody want to sit down and write a memoir? Well, hmm, what makes you want to sit down and write a memoir? Let's see. I, well, I was, worked as a journalist for a number of years before I started writing memoir. I um, had been a reporter. My dog is acting up in the background. Is that okay? <laughs> That's okay. All right, okay. If it's okay with you, it's okay with me. Um, I had been a reporter at my hometown paper, and... Um, I kind of kept bumping up against stories about my family while I was a reporter because um, for anybody who's read Five Figure Discount, you know, I had a lot of criminals in my family, including my grandfather who tried to murder us when I was a kid, when I was five years old. And um, he was by far the worst in the family. We also had a, an uncle bookie and, um, you know, a couple of political fixers who worked with the corrupt Jersey City government and, you know, all, all kinds of characters. Anyway, I thought everybody had relatives like this. It turns out they don't. Um, I went to graduate school to Columbia for my MFA. And as I was writing these stories, I realized not everybody had these kind of relatives. So that's when it sort of occurred to me to write memoir and write about my family. So did you pitch the book before you really got rolling or as you put all the little stories together? How did that go? Well, what happened was, like I said, I was a reporter and um, I had gotten sick of being in Jersey City. I kept bumping up against these stories, you know, and I really wanted to get out of where I'd grown up. And I'd gone to Alaska for a year to work as a news director at a radio station in Nome. And um, when I was done there, I was trying to figure out what to do. And that's when I wound up going to graduate school. And so when I was in graduate school, my thesis was actually about the year I had spent in Nome. And so I was writing those stories. And it wasn't until I got like assignments in class to write about like family stuff that I realized I had like this rich material, basically. It sort of came at me sideways. You know, I wasn't, I, I did not want to write about my family. You know, I was writing about the year in Alaska and um, these, these stories just kept bubbling up. And I was trying to pitch the Alaska book. I kept sending that out to people, to agents. And they liked my writing, but they didn't think I could sell it and blah, 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 blah. And finally one agent said, do you have any other ideas? And just out of desperation, <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, I have a lot of criminals in my family. And just at that time, The Sopranos had just started. So the timing was really important, I think. And it's all about the zeitgeist, right? And, um, you know, 
The Sopranos takes place in New Jersey. My family is from New Jersey. You know, my family wasn't in the mafia, but there was crime. And um, and so, you know, I kind of quickly came up with this pitch for a, a book about my family. And that wound up selling in a weekend. <laughs> Labor Day, 1999. So. so that was the same person who asked if you had other ideas. It actually wasn't, actually. What happened was I had sent her the pitch. I had done a 50-page proposal she had asked me to do. I sent it to her, and she never answered me. And it was just like, it was devastating to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was like, I just spent like a month writing this proposal, right? But my husband was like, this is really good. You need to send it out to other people. And having experienced the agent thing with the Alaska book, I kind of had researched agents, and I knew who was who by then. It was sort of like you kind of learn as you go, you know. And um, so then I had a list of people to send it to. And I sent that proposal out to like maybe 10, 12 agents, something like that. And I got immediate response, you know. And so then it was a matter of which agent do I go with? You know, several, I think three agents wanted me right off the bat. It happened really fast. And then I was freaked out. I didn't know who to go with. And so I actually went to a site and asked her, which, which is it my, this is how my family approaches problems. You know, I went to a psychic and asked her which one I should choose. And she told me. And so <laughs> and I that, picked the one who wound up at William Morris. So it all turned out good in the end. How do you think a publisher knows um, that it's a good story and, and to throw something out there? Well, I think because of the subject matter, and like I said, what was happening with The Sopranos, The Sopranos was huge. I mean, I don't know if you remember it, but it was, it, right. was, it was huge. It was a huge thing. It was a phenomenon. And so that was in everybody's head. You know what I mean? So I think mm-hmm. when it went out, people had that at the back of their minds. And, you know, not that it's not well written. I mean, I'm a pretty, pretty good writer and I'm a good reporter. So I think they saw that in the pitch and they just picked it right up I, th- I think it's just sort of what's in the air in a way you know what I mean I, I don't know it's like publishers rarely take chances on anything that unusual I think they kind of want wanted to spin off something that's happening in, in the world you know and that's what was going on at the time so right. I kind of lucked out in a way so is it scary when the review copies go out is it more scary when it hits the shelves is it more scary when the family is able to pick it up each port was scary because <laughs> the thing is when you when you're writing a book you think well nobody's probably going to read this book you know what i mean you go into it mm-hmm. like i at least i did i was i was didn't have a lot of confidence so I, i'm writing this book i'm thinking okay i'm going to write this book uh will my family get mad well nobody's going to really see it. it's going to come and go probably it's not a big deal mm-hmm. so i finished the book and then i send it to some relatives, like people who are in the book, I sent them the galleys just mm-hmm. to get a look at it before it came out because I didn't want to be surprised about what was out there. And that was surprisingly good. I mean, people were really great and they loved it and they had no problems with it. I don't think anybody asked me to change anything actually. And so then it comes out. And with my book, you know, it was a bestseller when it came out. So I was on the Today Show and it got reviewed everywhere, you know, every every newspaper, every magazine across the country. I was on a, a national tour. So that was a shock because I just, I didn't expect it to get that much attention. It was a crazy ride. You know, I had relatives who weren't even in the book complaining mm-hmm. and, and mad at me who some still don't talk to me to this day. And, um, but my core family and the people that I was close to were all great, you know, very supportive of me. Um, they got a lot of backlash in Jersey City because they still lived in Jersey City right. and worked in Jersey City. So that was a little hard for them. And I still feel bad about that, actually. But um, yeah, it came in stages. You know, it was, it was pretty monumental for me. I, I, it, was, it was great. 
in one way, but a little hard to take in another because you were sort of like, I was sort of exposing my family and exploiting my family. (laughs) And, uh, you know, when I was reading it, (laughs) I didn't think anybody was going to really read it. And so it it was kind of a big deal, but it, it sort of changed my life and put me on the map as a writer. I mean, maybe... That's kind of one reason why people write one. They don't want to have to yeah. deal with any of yeah. the periphery more than one time. I know. I'm ex- I'm extra brave, you know. <laughs> yeah. Three. Um, it, it seems to be a bit of a trend these days, though, from some of the memoirs that I know that maybe a lot of people think that a memoir is supposed to be about a whole life. But it seems nowadays it's about specific periods in people's lives. Right. It's more of a slice. Yeah. Yeah, I think years ago, um, back in the old days, you know, if you wrote a memoir, it was about your whole life. But it, everything changed around the time that Five Finger Discount came out. I mean, every, the whole landscape was changing. Um, Mary Carr had written The Liar's Club, and that was like the first really big memoir. And so this came out right after that. And the stage was being set for memoir in a way. It was, it was kind of an exciting time, you know. And of course, things have changed since then. Now, the bar for memoir is so much higher. Like you had to have died and come back to life, you know, write <laughs> a memoir. Nobody cares if you had criminals in your family. You know, it's got to be a lot more sensational. So that's how that's changed, you know. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. It, it has become more specific and and like I said, a little a little bit more sensational even. So then comes the next one, Baby Plays Around, and right. that one got a little more personal than the first one. Right. And then came the third one and the third one was about a murder as you said earlier and it was about a person that a lot of people in your family probably hadn't met right no nobody had met <laughs> right. long gone yeah right and and eventually we're, we're going to get to the point where that takes us to the fourth book but but <laughs> right. in going from one to two first what was that like and then going from two to three uh sure. how did that compare well, what happened with the second book was, you know, the first book was out there, was doing well. It had just launched, I think. I, I, I don't even know if it had actually come out yet when I started the second book. I think it was still on the, you know, it was take, it was about to take off. And um, my agent said, so what are you going to do next? You know, and that's the dreaded question, you know. I said, oh, how about writing about this experience that I had being in a band? I was a drummer in a rock band on the Lower East Side. She said, oh, yeah, go ahead, go for it. You know, write about it. And so I started writing about it. But midway through, I realized that my marriage almost broke, which I knew, obviously knew, <laughs> my marriage almost broke up while I was in the band. But I hadn't really planned on writing about that. I sort of compartmentalized it in my head. But then I realized it was integrally, integrally, I don't know if that's a word, connected to the band. So I couldn't write around it. It was too big. It was like a giant, you know, elephant in the room right right and so i went to the agent and i said you know i think i might have to write about this thing too about this breakup and she was just like you don't want to do that but that would be a great book (laughs) (laughs) and that's all you have to say to me right it's like uh, it's gonna be well i'm a reporter right and i go find the information that's going to be best for the story that i write you know i really hold no punch i pull no punches i really always go for the for the guts you know and so I decided to just go there and see what happened. And so I wrote it. And it really elevated the whole story and made it a whole different book. And it totally worked. And so then I went down that road. So it was about my marriage breaking up. We wound up getting back together. But um, so it was about the band, but it was also about this personal, very, very deeply personal, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it was much more 
hard to write than Five Finger Discount. Five Finger Discount, you know, was mostly stories that my mother had told me, some stories that I had seen firsthand, like my grandfather trying to kill us, which certainly is painful. But um, this was something that was more recent. And, you know, your marriage, I mean, that, that's, that's pretty, you can't get much closer than that, right? Right. And so, um, yeah, so I did that. But it was actually really good for both of us because I don't think we had been through some therapy, but this was like major therapy. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it sort of cleared out any residual resentment or anything that was there. And um, I think the marriage actually was stronger for it. And um, my husband was great. I mean, he actually helped me write it. He, he was very forthcoming with everything on his end. Yeah, so that was Baby Plays Around. So it was a very different book, very different subject matter, but still memoir, you know, and like you said, very personal and kind of cut to the core. And the thing with memoir is I think the reader knows if you're holding back. Mm -hmm. So I think if I had avoided the subject, it just would have stank, you know? Right. <laughs> um, so it was right there in the middle. And um, it, ha it has a happy ending, you know? <laughs> right, survival. Just like the, yeah. first, the first book had exactly. survival earlier, <laughs> the second book exactly. had survival later. Exactly. So that was number two. So, And then Murder in Madeira, right? I always say the third Mater word wrong because I always want to put Matera. Matera. Yeah, Nobody I always want to put it right. different Matera. letters Everybody in there. Everybody thinks it's Madeira wine. It's Matera, yeah. Um, yeah, so again, you know, my agent was like, so what next, you know? And I was, I really wanted to just take a nap after that. I was mm -hmm. exhausted. And she's like, no, no, you got to pitch another book. And so um, she actually came up with the idea. She's like, you know, there's that character in the first book, Vita, your great-great-grandmother, who apparently killed somebody in southern Italy. Why don't you go and see if you can find that murder? And I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'll go to southern Italy. Oh, that'll be fun, you know. And so I packed up my kids and my mother and um, left my husband behind. He was working. And I went to southern Italy. I had never really been there before. Uh, to prepare, I went before I went with my kids, I went a few months earlier just to kind of scope it out to make sure it wasn't dangerous or anything because I, I didn't know what I was getting into. And uh, I did a travel piece and went down there with a friend. And um, it was great. And I loved it. And I was like, yeah, let's do it. So signed up my mother, got the kids packed, mm -hmm. sent the playpen down there, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> mailed it and um, went to southern Italy for a month. And I thought I was going to show up and everybody was just going to tell me what happened in my family. And, you know, I was sorely mistaken. That was not going to happen. So it was a shameful story. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Um, it took me 10 years to dig out the story. Wow. And I, but I finally found it because I'm relentless. You know, I'm just sort of like a pit bull. You know, it's like once I get on your ankle, I'm not going to let go. <laughs> and uh, it just it actually made me angry that people wouldn't tell me the story because I knew people knew it and they wouldn't share it with me. And so I just went, kept going back and back and back. And finally, you know, I think it was 10 years took to actually find the 600 page criminal file that that was the magical thing finding the file i was going to say what was the magic question yeah. that you asked that well i mean i just had a feeling people knew like i would ask you know does do you know about this murder that took place around this certain time you know i gave them the dates and the names of the people and i just knew they knew because this was a town it's a really small town it's like something like that happens 100 years ago people are going to remember it it's just it just is you know and um but no one would talk about it and so Finally, um, I guess the fourth time I was there, I can't even remember what number, it's all been clouded in my brain, but I went back and um, I met a lawyer who had been researching his family and he was better at the actual hands-on research than I was. I didn't know what I was doing, you know, because I was, you know, doing research in America is one thing and Southern Italy, it's all of the story. Mm -hmm. And um, so he had some 
clues on where to look and how to look. And so when I went back again, I met him, maybe that was the third visit, the third visit. And then the fourth visit, when I went back again, he was helping me. And I was in some town doing some research and he was in the archives that day. And he came across a card that had the names of my great-great-grandmother and great-great-grandfather, their last names, hmm. and a murder. But it was in 1872, and I thought the murder had happened around 1892, which is when my great-great-grandmother came to America. Right. Um, so I had been kind of looking in the wrong place, you know? And he didn't have that. He wasn't thinking in those terms, like, exactly when this would have happened. He was just looking, and he stumbled upon the, the card that had the names on it with the murder. And the next day, I went to the archives and found the file. So if he hadn't found the original card, obviously I wouldn't probably have found it. But right. um, and then they delivered this giant pile of paper to me <laughs> on a card, and sure enough, you know all the dates matched up: the birthdays of my great great grandmother and the great great grandfather, and the places where they were born, and it was all right there. Yeah, that was it. The rest is and history, as they say, right? Heart, heart attack. Yeah, I mean it was it was. Uh, I, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. Um, I thought I was never going to find it. I, I was just like, how long am I going to be looking for this murder? When, when am I going to just stop, you know? And, um, and there I was. So it, it was a pretty great moment and uh, cathartic, but also sad, you know, because it was true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the part of you is like, well, maybe this didn't really happen, you know? Right. But it, it had. So, and that's, and this whole journey is told in the story of Murder Matera, of me going there and finding it and all that. So it's sort of like alternating chapters of me looking and then me finding stuff, me looking and then me finding stuff. Right. And so I compare it to The Godfather Part Two, you know, with the Al Pacino and um, the flashbacks to Robert De Niro. Right. <laughs> you know, so you've got the, the story from 100 years ago interspersed with the now, you know. Right. So because of the, the distance between you and and the story when it took place um, did it feel like you were telling did it feel like a memoir or did it feel like a more like a a, a research book in a historical uh, story well it was probably more research book you know what I mean the the memoir part of it sort of made it um, easier easier to write in a way and easier for people to relate to it I think because I'm taking it with me and I'm saying here come here let's look at this stuff you know and mm -hmm. so that access was was key I think in the writing um, but a lot of it was research yeah so those 10 years while I was trying to find it and I wasn't finding it I was doing all this research because really just to write around it you know what I mean because when you when you're a journalist and you can't get the facts on a story to do a write around I don't know if you've ever had to do that and it's basically talking to the people all around it you know, to try and find out what happened. Um, and so that's what I had been doing. I've been reading all these books about Southern Italy and about the history down there, and I, I really didn't know anything about it. And it was, it kind of blew my mind. You know, mm -hmm. people were starving down there. You know, this land of abundance, abundanza, right? Southern Italy, um, it was this feudal farm system. And people were literally like starving down there. You know, they, they weren't allowed to, to use the land to their own advantage. They were working for the, the uh, one percenters, I'd say. And um, that's why they came to America. You know, nine million Italians came to America, most of them from Southern Italy. Mm -hmm. And this was why. And so that just opened itself up to me. And with that, I was then able to sort of go there with a little more confidence and a little more just knowledge and like being able to relate to people there a little better, I think. I think when I first went, I was really arrogant and just this stupid American like going down there saying, tell me my story. This mm -hmm. is my story, you know? 
But now I had this deep understanding of the place. And by then, of course, I had met a lot of people and had become friends with people. And it just sort of opened itself up to me. And so that was paired with the with the memoir, you know. And, you know, getting to know Vida kind of through all these different documents and stuff was mm-hmm. kind of weird, you know, because I felt like I was kind of channeling her in a way, you know. She's right. in my DNA, you know. So I wrote her almost like I was writing myself, you know. What mm-hmm. would I have been like 100 years ago, you know, short with a big mouth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't change, you know, from <laughs> generation to generation I don't think and so yeah so it was definitely a big combination of those two things but a, a heavy on the research so interestingly enough that worked out to be a pretty good transition to your, your latest book exactly you want to talk about that <laughs> yeah sure so um you know I was starting to get nervous I'm like I don't have any more memoirs in me I don't think <laughs> Right. <laughs> the memoir, right. you know, I was the back of my mind. I wasn't like literally sitting down and thinking about it, but it was definitely back there. So I was kind of kicking around some some ideas, what I could do, and and then I wrote a story for the New York Times. My agent knew some woman who wanted someone to write a story about her grandfather. She had stumbled, Bonnie, the granddaughter, had stumbled upon this footage that he had shot back in the 50s of Marilyn Monroe the night that her dress blew up on the subway grate in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And it was the only footage from that night that that survived, really. Billy Wilder had shot Seven Year Itch, but it was very risque when they shot that on the street. And he kind of, quote unquote, lost the footage. It was was too much, so they, they got rid of it. They reshot it on a soundstage in Hollywood. So the footage that her grandfather shot, this beautiful color Kodachrome footage, was really the last remaining footage from that night. Aside from the photos, you know, we've got a bazillion photos from that night. It was mm-hmm. like the shot scene around the world, they call it, you know, right. with a dress blowing up. Everybody, it's iconic, right? But actual f- film footage, we didn't have. So Bonnie's got this footage and she wants somebody to write about finding it. And so Bonnie and I meet and Bonnie and I completely hit it off. And um, so I write the story for the Times. And it was one of those stories that you kind of feel it in your bones when you're writing it it's going to go viral and it was just one of those stories like it went everywhere it was the story (laughs) shot around the the world so it wasn't just about Marilyn Monroe and her dress blowing up but it was about her grandfather escaping from Nazi Germany in 1938 and so it's his journey coming from there and then Marilyn's journey coming to that street corner and then meeting and bam you know you've got this moment so it comes out in the times and they ran it like on the website it's on the web page like right at the top and they had the footage. She had licensed uh, some footage to them. Not a lot, just a few seconds to run. And uh, you just, it's right there. There's Marilyn and it's still, and you push play and there she is. And so that just caught everybody's attention because everybody, <laughs> everybody wants to see Marilyn Monroe. You right. know, it's like, it's always, she's just a perennial. And it just, like I said, it went all over the place. And one of the people who saw it and loved it was Steven Spielberg. And so he optioned it for a movie. Wow. So then Bonnie wound up working with his people on writing a screenplay. So then the screenplay came in and they weren't happy with it. And then Bonnie was like, well, maybe I should write a book about my grandfather. Do you want to write a book about my grandfather? Hmm. Yeah. You know, I had been looking for an idea, right? You know, when something gets optioned, you don't think of writing a book because it's already been optioned. The reason you write the book is to get the option, right? Right. So now the movie's on hold and we're like, okay, yeah, let's write a book. Why not? You know, so this was like December of 2019. 
And so <laughs> you know what's coming, right? Yeah. So then um, yep. we start working on this proposal and the whole world shuts down. And so we just, thank God, had this thing to work on, you know, and so we kept working on the proposal and my agent sold it that following summer. So it was that first summer of COVID. So I think right. it was July of 2020. We sold it to Simon & Schuster. So for the last two years, that's all I've been doing pretty much. I've been writing this book with Bonnie. And so Bonnie's been doing a lot of the research, which is great to have somebody to help me do that. And uh, she digs up all this stuff about her family. You know, we got all this incredible stuff from Nazi Germany. And it just blows my mind every day. So is this the Maryland part wasn't exciting enough? What I'm finding right now is that I can't get enough of stories, novels, memoirs, anything related to the Holocaust. I'm looking all the time and I'm just devouring the stuff. I know. It's, there's so much out there. That's the problem. I mean, unfortunately, it was a huge, uh, horrible event in human history, right? Probably the worst. And so there's just the bottomless pit of horror stories that come out of it. And um, not just horror stories, but also triumphs, you know, people who survived, which is just mind boggling. You know, every story that we've come across from her family or even people who just knew her family or whatever, all the Jewish relatives and friends, everyone has some incredible story. Like everyone could be its own book. And it's just, it's incredible. It's just incredible. And so, you know, you just start digging and you just, there's more and more and more. And then I didn't even know that much about the hall because I thought I did. You know, I had read the usual, you know, I'd read Anne Frank and Levy and, you know, the basic stuff that you mm -hmm. read in school or whatever. But, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg. It's just been this incredible journey. And not just to read books about it, but to actually get the original documents from Nazi Germany to see like the swastika stamped on them with her relatives' names there. And she, her family didn't even know what happened to most of their relatives. Right. From this book, we found out what happened to them. They didn't know. They didn't even want to know, probably. And so you've got a bunch of people who start with Jules, our main character, in Berlin. And then he gets out, and a lot of them don't. And so you're not only finding out what happens to Jules, but you're finding out what happened to these people. And it's just a pretty dark, dark journey. He comes to New York, obviously, and he settles here. And then, um, you know, about halfway through, the narrative shifts, you know, and then he's here. And it's I, I have two acts, basically. The first mm -hmm. act is mostly Nazi Germany. And, and oh, <laughs> I almost forgot the other crazy part of the story. To get to America from Nazi Germany, you had to have a sponsor. A financial sponsor who is pretty wealthy because they didn't want you to come here and then be a charge of the state right. as they call it right and so that was one of the hardest parts about coming here you had to have somebody with money to bring you over right so Jules's family wasn't poor but they weren't crazy rich and so he didn't really have a sponsor so he came to America to look for a sponsor in um, early 38 and wound up getting this guy named Harry Donenfeld to be his sponsor. And Harry Donenfeld was the publisher of Superman. Huh. So the book title is The American Way, The True Story of Nazi Escape, Superman, and Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> it gets better and better. It's crazy. It's a crazy story. And it's like true. It's totally true. And it just blows my mind every time I sit down every morning to write it. But so the first half is basically about Harry Donenfeld and the founding of Superman, which was created by two Jewish guys from Cleveland, two Jewish kids from Cleveland. So that story about Harry Donenfeld, who had also been a bootlegger and a pornographer, and so <laughs> Harry's like his own book, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you've got 
Jules and his family in Nazi Germany. And so those two meet, right? Because he's bringing them over. So then he gets here. And like I said, so then it shifts. And then we've got Marilyn Monroe. And the, the big challenge for me was how does Marilyn Monroe connect to the whole story aside from Jules shooting her that night? You know, is there, are there other connections, right? Because it seems a little disjointed. So the beautiful thing about research and journalism is that you dig and dig and dig until you find what you're looking for, right? And sure enough, you know, I'm reading this book about Marilyn. I'd read a bunch of her bio biographies. And one biography I read had a picture of her from 1946. She had been a, a model for magazines before she became an actress, right? 1946, she's posing for all these magazines for the, and she's on all these covers in 1946. And there's a picture of her, and it's a candid shot. It was at the back of this book that I had just finished. I could have just passed over it because it wasn't even the book proper. It was like really towards the very end. Uh, this candid shot of her standing with, looks like nothing on but the magazine covers, a bunch of the magazine covers. So she's sort of draped in them and she's laughing. <laughs> the magazines are mostly Harry's magazines, Harry oh. Donenfeld. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my God. Because I knew what his magazines were at this point because I had been researching him. So as soon as I saw that picture, I knew that those were his magazines. And so she had been a model on the cover of this stupid magazine that he put out called Laugh, L-A-F-F. It was a girly magazine, not girly, but it was like a, a cheesecake, you know, sort mm -hmm. of girls in bathing suits kind of magazine for the troops mostly, it was for GIs. So then I researched that stuff because nobody knows about it. Who knows about Laugh? I never even heard of it, right? So I start researching that. And sure enough, there she is on practically every cover of Laugh magazine. And so that was our end to the transition to, um, to Maryland. And so then we pick it up from there. And, and then we get to the street corner about three quarters of the way through. And I don't want to tell you the ending, but. <laughs> well, well, no, but when, when will we all get to read the ending? Oh, so um, I think it'll be spring of 23 that it'll come out. Um, Bonnie's doing the cover. She's designing the cover because that's what she does. She's a graphic designer. It's really terrific. So we're, we're pushing for, for spring of 23. So wow. basically in a year. Yeah. yeah, that'll be fun. I'm excited. Let's wrap up by coming around full circle. What do you tell somebody who's contemplating sitting down to put any piece of their life on paper? What's your advice to, to get started and keep going? Well, my main thing is to just write and not worry about who you're going to upset because <laughs> that's like you can't think in those terms because you'll never write anything. You'll be frozen at the screen, you know. Just pretend nobody's going to read it ever and just sit down and do it. And also interview people, like talk to everybody in your family because a lot of times what you remember is not what somebody else remembers. And a lot of times, you know, what somebody else remembers is just an elaboration of what you remember. And so it's, I, I approach it like reporting. If you're gonna write a good story, you have to have good facts. You know, you have to have, you have, to have the, the goods basically to write the story, right? Which was the problem with Murder on Matera, right? I didn't have the murder, so I couldn't really write it. So you have to get out there and get it. Maybe before you even sit down, talk to some of your relatives, talk to whatever your story is, you know what I mean? Whether it's your mother and your siblings, your grandmother, whatever you're writing about, right? Talk to as many people as you can. When I did um, Five Finger Discount, I spoke to friends as well, not just family members, interviewed a lot of people. And so then you sit down, you've got sort of some stuff to work with. You need the, you need the material then just just sit down and write it and you know the the beginning's going to change that a thousand times you know the beginning's not going to be the beginning when you're done with it it's maybe the ending you, you never know things move around but don't worry about it just do it just sit down and another good thing is to have a group to share stuff with 
like a writing, writing group of some kind, like a workshop or something, whether you take a class or if you've got friends who are also writing, sometimes libraries have things like that. That's good because you can bounce stuff off of people and they kind of help you keep going. It's nice to have some cheerleaders in your life. Um, so those are my, my basic tips. Memoirist Helene Stepinski, thank you very much for joining me on This One Thing I Do. It's, it's been a great chat. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to This One Thing I Do, a podcast about people and their passions. If you'd like to be a guest on This One Thing I Do, email us at thisonething at edwardiantimes.net. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram.